Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Yusuf, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. We're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects, but you're not, I mean, would you call yourself a researcher of the Kennedy assassination? Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been uh, certainly for about 30 years, um, not, not as involved as some of the, uh, the veterans that you've um, had conversations with on this, uh, on this uh, excellent podcast. But, uh, you know, I was, um, you know, I remember watching, if you're looking for kind of a Freudian psychoanalytical explanation, I guess I was, uh, you know, I saw Oliver Stone's film when I was about, um, I guess, 10, 10, 11 at the time when it came out. And my dad was the one who kind of showed it to me. I was probably a bit young for the rating technically, but uh, I think that's when I was first exposed to it in my early teens. And it, it's not that I've been kind of involved continuously since then, but I, I think it had a, a real influence on me. And it's it's probably, the, the I would say, the most important film I've ever seen in my life. Um, so I think it had a very defining influence on me. And then I moved on with my life, unlike, uh, say, the, the character in the Richard Linklater film, who's, um, I've forget, forgotten the name of the movie now, but who's uh, kind of cornering people in the bookshop and boring them with uh, various theories. So I came back to it, I think, with the 50th anniversary, really, um, about, well, 10 years ago now. And that reignited, rekindled my interest in the subject. And that's when I really started getting to grips with it quite seriously, to the point where I'm now, <clears throat> you know, re um, researching and writing on uh, certainly co covert operations during the Kennedy presidency. And uh, I think that inevitably leads you on to Operation Mongoose and to the Kennedy assassination. So we're going to talk about some of that, but I got to ask about Oliver Stone's film. I've never seen it. Um, I've only seen the newer one with Jim Eugenio on. Um, and I've seen that that's more documentary based than the actual fantasy part that Oliver Stone does with his film a little bit. But I'm curious, what are your thoughts? on? I think the most important thing about that film is it <clears throat> it created the Assassination Records Review Board. Like without that, we wouldn't have documentation. There wouldn't be a prime focus in the public to want to get documents and get all the answers. But I get where people say he added some things here and he added some things there, which you have to do if you're making a film. But I mean, to me, the. The Assassination Records Review Board is just like one of the most important things that you could ever want out of a film. It's like getting a Grammy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredible achievement. I actually interviewed Oliver Stone briefly when Snowden came out. I was uh, doing kind of more freelance journalism then for the uh, Independent. I'm based, I should say, I'm based in the UK in England. Um, at the time, I was living in London. And uh, Snowden, I think, you know, a lot of parallels between that movie and the kind of um, uh, certainly the, the Oliver Stone's you know own life um but um yeah i mean I, I was watching it it's interesting it's actually on netflix right now i don't know obviously the, the u.s might be a bit different and i wonder if that's something to do with it being the 60th anniversary year of the assassination but it's on netflix and i think it was on amazon so i've been re-watching it kind of bit by bit and you're kind of amazed at how much that oliver stone actually got right really and that was 30 years ago before as you've pointed out a huge amount of information has come out through the, uh, the kind of declassification process. And of course, for a movie to lead to the uh, kind of co congressional legislation to the passing of the, uh, the, the kind of assassination records review board is about as a, an astonishing an impact as a movie can really ever hope to to achieve. So do you believe conspiracy in the Kennedy assassination? Yeah, I, I think I think the question for me is is never been whether there is a conspiracy based on once you, I think you go past a basic level of um, forensics, of ballistics, of um, witness testimony, I think it's very hard to to try and pedal the line that, the, of, the, of the lone assassin, the lone nut. Um, I think the question for me is <clears throat> how high level the conspiracy was this? 
Um, and what is the hard evidence that, that backs that up? I think that's where it obviously becomes much more difficult because you're dealing with covert operations, you're dealing with plausible deniability, cover-up. And I think the cover-up, which is far more extensive, uh, and I don't think anyone can really argue with that, the cover-up, <clears throat> we have you know, firm, solid evidence of, of the cover-up. We have you know, Hoover, the conversations, you know, some of which we kind of knew about before, but some of which have been emphasized in the recent uh, document releases. Conversations, for example, between Hoover and um, LBJ straight in the aftermath of the assassination that same weekend where they're talking about, you know, and, and along with Nicholas, I think it's Nicholas Katzen, Katzenbach, who's the, uh, the attorney, well, not the attorney general, he was um, being the deputy attorney, attorney general at the time. They're talking about how to produce this kind of version uh, that will convince the public of a lone assassin. So I think the cover-up is is very firmly established in, in many ways, but that unfortunately blurs into the kind of pre-assassination plot. And that's where it becomes very hard to, to kind of disentangle, to unpack the two, perhaps. Now, your your focus was with just the covert operations that were going on that eventually just led you into looking more into the Kennedy assassination, much like when I had Christopher Moran on. Um, I think I'm saying his last name right. Uh when I had him on, all I was asking was Kennedy kind of related questions, if you could tell, besides some of his CIA memoir stuff. But that's how it was when I had a guy who interviewed Traficante and then also did books on his life and his family. I was just asking Kennedy assassination questions because there's like it's a weird chunk of history. It seems like every figure was somehow co not connected, but their name pops up somewhere in a document where it's just like I've been through over like 60 4,000 of them. So it's like, I'm looking at all these documents. I'm like, that guy's name pops up. That guy's name pops up. How does it all get involved into the assassination? So I'm curious, your focus was the covert operations that were going on that led up to or before the Kennedy assassination. So what were you coming across that kind of changed your perspective on our government? Organized crime was the easy one for me. And then MKUltra kind of put the cherry on the top. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's astonishing. I actually embarked on a, a PhD on um, really, the, the concept of the secret state, or what people, of course, nowadays call the deep state, um, and I, I kind of zeroed in on on uh, Cuban covert operations because I think uh, something like Operation Mongoose, is, as you've identified, is a very good example of that concept of a, a nexus, a network of vested interests, and you have there um, this whole kind of motley crew uh, of of uh, foot soldiers in the form of kind of fanatical anti-Castro Cubans, um, numbering in the kind of hundreds and then the thousands. You've got, as you pointed out, organized crime heads, people like Johnny Roselli, Sam Giancana, Santos Traficante, who are working with the CIA and have actually a kind of uh, that, that organized crime mafia side having a, a well-established relationship with the CIA going back to World War II, really, to the kind of um, US um, uh, operate, well, operations in Sicily that, that eventually led to uh, to, to, to contribute to the end of World War II. Um, and then you have, of course, the CIA, who are uh, the, the, the kind of the main um, players and the, the, the number of rather kind of infamous, notorious characters amongst them, uh, David Phillips, um, uh, of course, David Sanchez Morales, Bill Harvey, uh, Richard Helms, and so on, all the way up to the kind of top of this hierarchy. And you have this clique, amazingly, of... Um, CIA officers, operatives who are involved, um, along with some of these, uh, I think, particularly Cuban um, uh, exile um, foot soldiers or, or uh, assets who were involved 
again, time and again, in, in a whole succession of um, absolutely kind of seminal, critical covert operations over decades. So you kind of go back to Guatemala, and it's the same CIA clique of David Phillips. Uh, this is in 1954 with the overthrow of J Jacob Arbenz. Um, you have Phillips, you have Morales, you have Tracy Barnes, uh, and it goes kind of uh, up up the chain, obviously, to people like Alan Dulles, who you've talked about extensively with David Talbot. Um, and then you see that, of course, through the Bay of Pigs, through Mongos, through Q those kind of Cuban operations. And then that extends, some of them go off into to, to be involved in Vietnam, people like um, uh, particularly David um, Morales, Ted Shackley, who was running the JM Wave Miami station, um, and um, also uh, the likes of George Joanidas, who's heavily involved in, in certainly in Cuban operations, goes off, I think, to Vietnam as well. And then some of these same characters emerge again in the Chile, uh, Chilean operations uh, that led to the, the overthrow of, of Salvador Allende there. So, so you have this, and even you trace a line all the way through to Iran-Contra, cocaine-Contra uh, in the 80s, and you see people like Barry Seal, people like Felix Rodriguez, even some of whom are, are, are still involved, along with other CIA operatives such as Carl Jenkins, still alive, incredibly, um, at 95, roughly, I believe. So you've, you've got these, these this kind of whole lineage um, over decades of this, this same kind of clique of clandestine operators involved in in some of the most kind of critical um, operations during the Cold War. Do you think that that's because that team was used or that those people were used? Like they could have got anybody to do any of those actions or any of those plots, but it seemed like these were such secretive missions that they were carrying out that it had to be like the same team. If we know they work, use them over here and use them over there. And it can't be just a coincidence that their name keeps popping up, but maybe that's the reason why we have the history in that area that we do. These most controversial type situations like Mongoose, Northwoods um, being an example, these ideas that are being tossed out there and the people that they use to you know, implement those as well too. I mean, but that would lead in conspiracy territory if you toss that out there. People would think you're nuts, but it's like, Look in Latin America, the FBI's involvement in Latin America. Look at like the, this, the number of things that were going on in other countries that we didn't know about. And then you look at COINTELPRO. I mean, you're invading groups, causing them to try and attack each other so you can stop the spread there before it turns into a giant problem. It's the same thing, but you're doing it overseas. And now you're practicing covert operations, which is either regime change or many other things to try and get your way in that country. So, I mean... Is it, it, that's the, me saying that's a conspiracy, but do you think that has a lot of weight to it when you really look at the evidence? Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously, uh, I, I always thought, you know, I had an understanding of, um, I was interested in kind of, as a youngster, I think in, you know, a figure like Che Guevara, you know, a poster, a poster, uh, you know, of, of, a poster kind of of, of uh, rebellion and revolution. Uh, and I kind of read his his diaries as a youngster, and I became interested in Latin America. Um, and I knew about the regime change. You know, I knew about uh, what had happened, you know, broadly speaking, in Chile and Guatemala, the involvement of the CIA in some of these operations, although to this day it should be pointed out, the CIA does deny that it was directly involved in the coup. We know that they were involved in destabilization operations in Chile, but they, they still kind of use the plausible deniability card, as it were, rightly or wrongly, but they were actually directly involved in the Pinochet coup that uh, was obviously very bloody and very brutal, led to a, uh, a very, um, uh, well, basically a kind of a, a fascist dictatorship. But um, uh, I, I think um, that, that stuff I was actually, as with many people, I think, who are involved in, in 
political activism, perhaps, or in progressive politics. I was aware of that stuff from a relatively young age in my teens. But it was only really after, actually, I should say that my background is actually a medical doctor, but then I found myself ill um, with, a, with a serious illness a few years ago. And, uh, you know, that changes your perspective on things when you when you confront that as a, as a young uh, person uh, or a relatively young person, I should say. Um, and, and I started to, you know, have the time and the space to delve into the kind of national security state, into covert operations. And it was only then, really, that I discovered the extent of some of this stuff that was going on um, in terms of, as, as you point out, Northwoods, with its you know incredible story when you really delve into that very relevant, of course, to what I've been focusing on in my PhD on and in my book on Q Cuban operations, or in Mongoose, or, of course, cocaine um, contra. And, and I think more recently, the broader concept of what's known as unconventional warfare, this idea of um, or irregular warfare is the other term that it goes by, the idea that the CIA and other agencies, including the US military, of course, and that obviously extends to other countries, um, making alliances with um, uh, whoever it might be that is going to essentially um, help you achieve your geopolitical aims, um, whether that is um, terrorists, whether it's paramilitaries, whether it's death squads, drug cartels, whoever it might be. And I think that's the pattern that you see in Mongoose, it's the pattern you see in cocaine contra, and it's actually the pattern you see later on in the 80s and in the last few decades with um, Operation Cyclone in Afghanistan, uh, aiding and uh, arming and supporting the Mujahideen. And that continues, that kind of collusion between um, intelligence agencies and kind of extremist militants, in this case, Islamists, in furthering certain geopolitical goals, whether that's the kind of neutralizing of of nationalism or independence, or whether it's the overthrow of more kind of independent regimes. So um, that, that that is a very kind of um, uh, that for me is the bigger picture, really, in terms of of those 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 doctrines, if you like. And there are documents that have been kind of leaked or have been released in recent years that seem to back back up back up that kind of view that that you make pragmatic alliances with sometimes very unsavory groups. But I think, you know, I think it does go beyond that. I think these, a lot of these operatives, when we look at that history that I've been alluding to, that I've been referencing from the, you know, during the Cold War from the 50s to the 80s, um, a lot of these people, you know, the, the likes of James Angleton, David Phillips, Alan Dulles himself, who were involved in these things towards the end of their lives, they actually did kind of um, have the need to try and rick it, to kind of, to confess and to recant and to seek some kind of atonement. They actually felt um, very guilty about a lot of what they've done. Uh, and that's fascinating, I think. We're going to go into Operation Mongoose and Northwoods for sure, and then eventually get to the Kennedy assassination. But I got to ask, after learning about all these covert operations, like I didn't, I would recommend basic reading as the church committee for every single person. I did not know that document existed. And then after I read it, um, the, there's like, oh, there's like four different documents. They're like 500 pages long, 600 pages long, 750 pages long. They're all different because they all go into different aspects of what the CIA is up to and other things as well too. But that let me know, at least this is what happens when you do not give any punishment to some of these powers. And I know the area of national security, but I'm also very critical on what that term means. It's an open door policy, which means they haven't defined it a hundred percent. So they can really label anything national security. Like me talking to 
um, one of the members of the Assassination Records Review Board, and I asked him about a document he requested for. It's in his file. It's only it's David Montague, but it's 12 things he requested for. One of them is the Lee Harvey Oswald mental um, interview that he had. That, that he went to a medical institution to interview for a job. It's called the Clinton incident. There's no link to that document. It has not been released yet. So what are they deeming as if they say these documents that they're keeping are national security? Why is his interview at a mental institution a is a national security issue? It's not going to affect. I mean, he's dead, so you can release the name. It's not going to be anything bad. We all know it's going to be Lee Harvey Oswald when it says LHO on the front. But what what is that national security word? And that causes me to be very critical. And I understand secrecy is needed, like if people are overseas in a situation where they could be at risk. I 100 percent agree with that. But I just want the defining word of their policies. And I feel like a lot of people, for instance, if we talked about Northwoods, when that was just trending after the recent release, everyone was calling like some people were calling it a conspiracy theory. Oh, Northwoods is a conspiracy theory. It's like, no, it's real. It's an idea that they had. It's a plan. But you have the public so disconnected from what your agencies are doing. I mean, I know three of them. I couldn't tell you the other like 16, and I don't know what any of them are doing. So it's like that's – I mean maybe that's their job, but – I, w I just want to find the defining line for the terms. So then I ask you, I mean, what are your thoughts on all these covert operations and things that go on? I mean, if you've been able to look through so many of them, you know more than the public does. And then why is the public so disconnected from it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a hell of a story. And I think every time I thought I kind of knew a lot or I knew enough, you just keep discovering more and more about the, this hidden history that you have to disinter. And that I think as you rightly point out, it's the responsibility of every citizen to be involved. And that's what's fantastic about the kind of the research community that has been investigating the Kennedy assassination. And there's a very interesting moment um, in the, the kind of Warren Commission um, uh, kind of uh, on the term they use, but for the kind of um, uh, confidential um, meetings that were taking place where, where Alan Dulles is, is kind of trying to school everyone in basics of tradecraft and then um, he's obviously telling them one, one of the bits about you know an agent not actually uh, even under oath declaring that he's an agent but I think there's, there's another bit where he says you know I, I don't don't believe that people in this country read um, you know when this report comes out uh, a few uh, professors will read it from cover to cover you know a few journalists will skim it that's about it you know and it's a breathtakingly arrogant, um, contemptuous, dismissive um, comment. And, and I think what's fascinating is Dulles was actually, you know, an astute uh, wielder of, of power. And he, you know, was a very influential figure over decades. So he did actually read <laughs> these things very well. But I think he got it completely wrong here. And what's actually happened is that this event, the assassination of President Kennedy, that I think they did not uh, anticipate would have these kind of ramifications has has continued to unfold over decades and the fascination that, that the public has with the subject and I think what David Talbot alluded to the trauma that it has um, led to um, psychologically and emotionally for the American public and even beyond that in terms of a popular charismatic democratically elected president who, who is young who is who, who is progressive, forward thinking, and so on, who represented a lot of kind of hopes of, of perhaps rightly or wrongly, again, depends on who you listen to, but who represented uh, hopes of kind of peace and, and so forth for a whole generation for him to be brutally gunned down in broad daylight 
um, like like the OK Corral at 12:30 at high noon in the in the streets of a, of a major American city. That trauma, um, I think, is reverberated in a way that wasn't anticipated by people like Dulles. And you have thousands of people, if not more than that, who have. I mean, I think thousands of serious researchers, and beyond that, I think you have hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people who have uh, absolute fascination and um, uh, interest in this subject and in similar subjects. And that, I think, is only snowballing. And I think we are seeing that in the time we're living in. There is more and more uh, disbelief. There is more and more um, skepticism and cynicism of the official mainstream version. And I think the, the kind of thing we are seeing, whether you disagree or agree with those, with kind of um, right-wing kind of populism or left-wing populism for that matter, which I probably would, would have much more affinity with, um, the status quo of kind of um, uh, free market capitalism, certainly of neoliberalism has collapsed. And I think the credibility of the mainstream version of events um, in terms of the major events that occurred back then and are still occurring right now in the war on terror, etc. That that credibility is increasingly under attack. And, and I think the, the kind of intersection between covert operations, between the use of propaganda and psyops to obscure the truth, which is a, an integral and intrinsic part of that, the collision between that and kind of postmodernism, I think that's a very fascinating um, area we're in, in in terms of trying to understand this increasingly confusing and um, overwhelming world that we're living in. Do you think that they did a bigger disservice to themselves by basically shooting themselves in the foot by doing all these types of actions to deny the truth for so long? I mean, now after 60 years, they've just opened up and said, we don't have to give you the rest of these documents, which after 60 years of people waiting for those documents, that's why there's a lawsuit against Biden right now for those documents. But they're like, we didn't have to, we don't have to give you these. And it's like, they didn't ever think people were going to keep up with it for 60 years. Most of the people that were alive that cared are dead. Now it's for the younger generation to really kind of pick up the mantle, and there's not a whole lot of people doing it on that front, but I don't side left or right. I've noticed it through the research community, even people that supported Kennedy, like he was killed by conspiracy. But then even people that didn't like Kennedy and voted against him, they go, I don't like him, but there's something here. And I go, that's what it is. It's There's, there's so many pieces that don't fit right, and then it seems like there's too much evidence to where any individual theory works. I mean, why do we have 64,000 or however many thousands of documents that we have? If it's so case closed and wrapped, why did the Warren Commission volumes not match the report that they gave to the public? Like what types of tactics and little things are going on? And then you've started to notice how it's now become the mob did it, CIA did it, or all these other theories. And now nobody's talking and trying to gather their information out just to sort out the facts. You get this one guy that came across that said, Jack Ruby never killed Oswald. I'm like, excuse me? He's like Jack Ruby. He's showing photos. Like the guy's not Jack Ruby. And I'm just like, I don't know if you've ever come in that with the community, but I saw it. I was like, damn. And then there's people like Northwoods is fake. I'm like, all right, I've seen the Northwoods document. There is things I can't explain in it, which is like when they're talking about downing an aircraft or downing an airplane, they mentioned about a sports team um, of like people on it. And I don't know if they were just creating a story that they would give to the press to say there was a sports team that crashed, or if they were legit thinking about going after a airplane with the sports team. And I really, I would have said that's a conspiracy, but then after learning more about Dag Hammarskjöld, I'm like, you guys could have did it a hundred percent. Yeah. Well, I, th I think the Northwoods story is incredible because of course 
the get out of jail card there will be to say, well, it was never implemented. It was just, you know, theory. It was just policies that we, you know, we, we were, were kind of airing all kinds of things. But, um, you know, the reason it didn't, of course, happen is because JFK vetoed it. So, um, you know, people, these kind of ultra conservative hawks, the likes of, of Lyman Lemnitzer, who was, I believe, the, the kind of the main author of this, you know, and, and Curtis LeMay and others, they would have obviously propagated this, voiced it, and unless perhaps, um, I think the thing about JFK was that he was independent, that he was, um, whether you like him or not, he was, he had a strong personality, it seems, and he was, he was prepared to, to take on some of these um, interests and, and to not back down, which was, of course, what, what led to the Bay of Pigs fiasco was they anticipated that, that this kind of young, malleable president and his advisors could just be manipulated quite, quite easily. Um, so I think, but yeah, northwards, I mean, you, you look at some of the detail there in terms of um, using replica planes or, um, you know, landing those planes, getting passengers off, um, then then that plane taking off again. And, and, you know, this is stuff that is very familiar from the terrain of conspiracy theory. Um, and yet here it is in an official document. So it's it's very disturbing, very dark. I didn't know that they had planes land and passengers came off and then they flew back out. I guess they were thinking like maybe nobody saw the landing and then they would act like it was shot down or something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that they're, they're, they're basically, it seems that they're rehearsing or, or playing out various scenarios that could either be real or fake. Um, so it's not clear whether with these false flags, uh, they actually want, as you say, want to take to, to carry out an actual terrorist attack um, even on they talk about I think attacks on the on the U.S. mainland, um, it's not clear whether these are going to be real or fake attacks. And of course, what, what you have to remember is that Gladio is taking place all throughout that period of the uh, the Cold War for some um, well certainly several decades. I think it was about forty five years that Gladio ran from the end of World War II, pretty much nineteen forty five, roughly up till nineteen ninety when it was revealed. And Gladio was um, you know, a NATO-led uh, slash CIA operation in mainland Europe um, involving pretty much every country in which there were uh, underground um, forces that, again, consisted of these rather unsavory groups that included, um, I think, Nazis at the time, fascists, paramilitaries, again, I think, organized crime. Um, and that was in preparation or in anticipation of a, a Russian or a Warsaw Pact invasion of Western Europe. That was the pretext for having these, these Gladio forces. Um, but then what seems to have happened is that these forces, unsurprisingly being quite, <laughs> um, you know, nefarious groups, started carrying out uh, other attacks. And I think that's obviously where the plausible deniability line is then used about, you know, did these people actually carry out these attacks? Did they have anything to do with us? No, they were just acting independently. But, um, you know, they'd certainly been funded, they'd been trained, they'd been armed. There's kind of corroboration from many of the participants, whether foot soldiers or even kind of uh, senior military people in certainly Italy, which was a, a major theater of Gladio. So this kind of stuff where, where we've seen, particularly in a country like Italy during the Cold War, terrorist attacks carried out, which um, appear to have been false flag events they were you know blamed on leftist groups such as the red brigades but they were actually uh, it looks like they were being carried out by gladio forces you know that's probably the most disturbing thing i've i've come across in all of this so that that i think dovetails quite nicely with um with northwards and you've got to remember that lemnitzer when 
JFK uh, following, I think, northwards, um, perhaps for other reasons, eventually replaced him with his favorite general, Maxwell Taylor, as the joint, uh, as the, sorry, as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Lemnitzer was moved to become supreme allied commander in NATO, where, of course, he would have presumably been very plugged into these gladio networks. Um, and we saw the same, we see the same thing with Bill Harvey that we might touch on um, if we have time later. So, um, so yeah, I, and I suspect that it, and what we do know about Gladio is that a lot of the um, overt or the elected leaders didn't necessarily know about it. This was something that was kept secret, not just from the public, but even from presidents, prime ministers, and even I think in certain cases, um, I think that the NATO, um, you know, secretary general or, or similar characters. So if these people were considered to be outsiders rather than insiders, it was kept from them. And I can bet, you know, I would bet fairly confidently that there's, a, you know, it's a speculation. But I would imagine there's a good chance that the Kennedy brothers didn't know about Gladio. There was, a, yeah, it's a, it seemed like a tight knit group that was going on before the Kennedys even arrived in there. Uh, and then I think the relationship, and I, I talked about this with um, David Talbot, but I think the relationship between Bo Bobby Kennedy and JFK, there's, there's a photo that Talbot puts on his book, but it's brothers, and it's where they're sitting in a room by themselves talking to each other. Whether that was just for the photo or not, you got to think, if we're brothers, we're going to have conversations that everyone else is probably not going to know about. And if we're having Thanksgiving dinner and we decide to talk about a little bit of a policy idea, that's that affects the inner workings of the government that's been going on the way that like a frat it's 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 messing with them because they're not on the end if you're not talking to the people that are there to apparently be your chief of staff or whoever then they're not inside your little group which makes an issue when you're having like backdoor dealings with castro or back uh door letters with khrushchev that becomes a problem to what i would call the establishment now i, I try and stay away from the words right wing and left wing and i get it people just do that but you tend to lose whoever might be on that side and i think this is a group effort to understand like this is your president and he was just killed in broad daylight and a real investigation was not done and we might have just labeled someone throughout history for killing the president who might actually be innocent in a sense i think there's a lot of things going on with lee harvey oswald that doesn't make sense whether that's added to his profile or not but when it comes to that inner workings and that relationship, I mean, do you think that there's weight to that when you start kind of looking at like, I mean, I still can't explain why um, during the debates with Nixon, Dulles wrote Kennedy's speeches, wrote some of his debate talking points. And then the only thing I can think of is he thought Kennedy was a pushover to be able to really – show the new guy hey this is what i do and this is what i do and then nixon knew that already because eisenhower's administration that he already knew what was going on and how he was going to handle it and alan dulles probably couldn't have the control that he wanted because i just know dulles is a controlling figure yeah yeah exactly i mean i think that's a really interesting point uh, robbie i think um uh, yeah what we of course know is that is that dulles um or certainly yeah dulles did it seems did um brief kennedy on Cuban operations and Kennedy actually used that uh, to his advantage by being able to to kind of put Nixon between a rock and a hard place on why wasn't you know the, the Eisenhower Nixon administration doing more about you know communist Castro in in Cuba and of course Nixon couldn't really reveal what was going on that they had plans for for the Bay of Pigs of course for an invasion um, so so I think yeah that very much uh, embittered Nixon he expected. Uh, non, you know, uh, absolute um, backing from the CIA, and I think that that really, you know, begins this kind of relationship on on Nixon's part of this paranoia that would continue, you know, right fester right into his presidency. Um, 
But um, yeah, I think Dulles, that tactic really, that's that's kind of a classic um, strategy, which is backing both horses, because that way, whoever wins, the idea is that you might have uh, traction with them, essentially. Um, and it's the same strategy that, that, interestingly, David Phillips, who I've been researching and writing about, um, David Attlee Phillips, was, was one of the first people when he was deep cover in Cuba during the Revolutionary um, War um, there between Castro and uh, the Castro forces and Batista, the Timpop dictator who was, who was presiding over uh, Cuba before Castro. Um, at that time, you know, the, the official position really was well, we need to back Batista. He's a strong man. That's kind of what we use in, in Latin America. Um, and Phillips was one of the kind of first people there to kind of say, well, look, this it looks like Castro is going to win. And um, when Lyman Kirkpatrick came to um, to visit, he was one of the senior CIA hierarchy when he came to, on a fact-finding mission to Cuba in the, I think this must have been the late 50s, Phillips briefed him in detail and said, look, you know, this is my idea. And, and Kirkpatrick was really taken aback by this kind of fresh, innovative approach. Phillips said, look, we, we need to start thinking about um, supporting Castro, perhaps because it looks like he's inevitably going to win. And Kirkpatrick took this idea back to CIA headquarters and um, people like uh, J.C. King, um, who was the, the chief of Western Hemisphere operators at the time, completely balked at this suggestion. It was like, no way we're going to do something like that. But it ended up going actually to people like Dulles, who said, well, actually, this is a really interesting idea. And that's when they started to to actually support Castro to some extent. Um, and that included, of course, cleverly infiltrating people like Frank Sturgis. Um, so kind of um, soldiers of fortune, people like that. So a lot of these figures who then later emerge, of course, in the anti-Castro um, covert warfare were previously um, infiltrated into the, the Castro um, forces. So, so I think you know there's all kinds of things going on there. There's there's an element of infiltrating your people there. I think there's also an element of, of just backing both horses in in the hope that when if and when Castro wins, you might be able to you know this is someone you're going to have to do business with. You're going to hope that you have some influence, some traction with them. We saw we actually see apparently the same thing with Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam. That, that initially there was CIA support for Ho Chi Minh. Uh, of course, he he later became. You know, someone who, as with Castro, it became clear that he wasn't prepared to to kind of play ball effectively. And it became clear that, that you know, with Castro, um, that, that I think there was, there was, it was actually the, the, the kind of corporate interests who decided that uh, this guy is not going to, you know, we, we have huge holdings, huge interests here. You know, if you look, I think Kennedy even makes a speech about this as a senator, the amount of um, ownership by US corporations of Cuba pre-Castro, the pre-Castro victory is massive. It's something like, I can't remember, but it's huge swathes of uh, the sugar industry, huge swathes of, of um, you know, of, of other uh, kind of sectors. Of course, the mafia had it, has its huge um, uh, profits from, from gambling, from kind of prostitution rackets, all of that. Um, so so there's, there's, there's all of that going on. And then it becomes clear that Castro is just not going to play ball. He's not going to do business. He's not going to allow these interests, whether it's corporate or, or illicit interests, to, to kind of to, to be involved, and he's going to start nationalizing things, and all this. And that's when they kind of give the green light to the intelligence community, and they say, "Look, you need to start working now on on really over, you know, trying to undermine, destabilize him, uh, and get rid of him, basically."
How did we get to the assassination plots on Castro? I mean, was that just because of Castro wanted his Cuba back? I believe it was a little bit of that, but also gun running, other things that were going on between the CIA and the mob that were going off the docks. I'm just I'm curious to what made this guy snap as well, too, to be like, you know, everyone's getting out of here. Um, all this business, he wants to reclaim Cuba. And then the, the number of plots, even that's kind of I've only come across, to be honest with you, like 26 of them. But I don't the 634, I know, is a number that gets tossed out. I think it's in Fabian Escalante's book about which it might be true, but I'm not spending the 70 something dollars to find out. <laughs> I just I did. I rather just, you know, what I can prove in a document is what I can find. And the things I found interesting was like I have a document that's a list of 13 names. And beside the names, there's at least two people of operations, assassination plots. And Sidney Gottlieb is under Lumumba and Castro, which to me is just like that guy's ahead of MK Ultra. And then you start scrolling down farther and farther, and you're coming across mob figures. Sam Giancana's name's on there. He's the one that tried to deliver poison pills and never actually fully delivered them from the government documents, which sucks because you're using the government as a reference to try and expose government corruption. I doubt they keep a log on that, but it's pretty revealing stuff. But the Lumumba thing, the Castro thing, I start wondering. I'm like, well, how many attempts did happen? I have the documents on a skin diving suit. I have the documents on a poison cigar. But then Fabian Escalante tossed out like a poison milkshake. I'm like, were you there? I don't know. I mean, if you were beside him and you saw it, then maybe I can take that at face value. But I mean, your thoughts on the assassination plots and also what really pissed off Castro to get to this point where he's kicking everybody out? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Castro is interesting because unlike, you know, I, I haven't studied him in in kind of huge detail, obviously, but but I certainly my understanding is that that whilst Che Guevara, for example, was a committed um, uh, kind of radical ideologically, he was you know someone who who was who was a you know Marxist or a certainly a socialist and a com even a communist. Castro actually was was not necessarily to begin with as politically committed as some of his um, kind of senior. Um, certainly comrades or um, senior um, uh, senior kind of clique around him. Um, but I think it became clear gradually that, that Castro wasn't able to really um, to deal with the US essentially. So, you know, he could have perhaps some kind of compromise or some kind of understanding could have been arrived at. But it became clearer and clearer to Castro that that was, wasn't going to happen. And that's when he actually found himself having to turn to the Soviets and to Khrushchev um, for kind of support. So it's yeah, it's 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 a, it's a strange story, isn't it? It's um, it's it's not not something that that wasn't kind of inevitable, as it were. Um, it could have could have perhaps uh, reached a different uh, conclusion. Um, I think in terms of how how they arrived at the assassination plots, yeah, I mean, I think those start from. Off the top of my head, 1959, I think, roughly speaking. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's a hell of an undertaking, of course. But you've meant very, very interestingly, I think, of course, if you've got um, fanatical anti-Castro Cuban exiles, if you've got mafia people who, who have these holdings, it's not very hard to see how perhaps with those kind of um, uh, allies or alliances that you arrive at something like that. Um, you know, I mean, for, for the kind of organized crime heads, uh, you know, the idea of, of assassination wouldn't have been, of course, far from 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 abnormal for them. But of course, for the CIA or the US government to be 
directly involved in something like that is, is of course, completely different and very disturbing thing. But you've mentioned Sidney Gottlieb, and of course, he's fascinating because that goes back to the kind of Frank Olson story, um, where I think, uh, I presume you've, you, 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 and perhaps I try to get his son on to talk about it. Um, but his son's, I saw his son's documentary. I want to talk to him about it. He said he couldn't because he's technically dealing with a lawsuit and they're dealing with some ramifications from that Netflix series that was about his, um, but I'm like the government said it, even the church committee, they talk about Frank Olson's death specifically being a product that could be the liability of the CIA's hands. So I don't know, maybe one day I'll get to be able to talk about him on that one, but that leads into like the hate Ashbury clinics where they're drugging people with LSD and, Good God, it brings you down a rabbit hole where I'm like, I don't think I wanted to know this much about their, that's why whenever someone goes, I don't want to know. I just kind of want to go, go to work and, you know, you know, eat, eat Panera bread or something. I go, that's fine. Cause I get it. Cause I researched into it. Now I'm like, damn, I don't know what to believe anymore. I'm more of a pessimist in life now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course it's, um, yeah. I mean, I actually met Eric Olson, who's, uh, who, as you've mentioned, is, is Frank Olson's son. He came to the, to, to London to give a, uh, kind of a keynote speech at a conference on uh, conspiracy in um, Goldsmiths University in London. So I, I got the, the chance to spend quite a lot of time, several hours interviewing him. Sadly, I never got it kind of in print. But yeah, he was an absolutely fascinating character. I've been trying to get hold of him recently, but I found that quite difficult. So so I hope he's okay. Um, it's interesting, of course, I didn't know about this lawsuit, so that's, that's you'll have to enlighten me. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the Frank Olson thing, of course, again, you know, Eric on a mission from the moment that these things started emerging in the 70s, all these um, scandals and operations uh, that were exposed, you know, pretty much for the first time and that completely essentially have shaped and defined our understanding of um, intelligence operations, or at least of clandestine and covert operations, and ha had a huge influence at the time and since, ever since on popular culture, of course, particularly Hollywood movies. Um, you think of the spate of movies that came out around that time, the likes of, of course, All the President's Men, Three Days of the Condor, The Parallax View, The Conversation, etc. Some absolutely fantastic, great, you know, movies, but very much influenced by what was coming out of the Church Committee about these alleged assassination plots against Castro, against Lumumba, um, against the Diem brothers, against Rafael Trujillo in the Dominican Republic. So, you know, this wasn't just one off. It wasn't just even tens or hundreds of plots against one leader uh, who happened to be, you know, 90 miles off the mainland. This was extensive. This was a whole apparatus. It was, you know, called ZR Rifle. Um, it was presided over by, by William King Harvey or Bill Harvey. Um, and um, yeah, it involved clearly other people such as the, um, you know, Sydney, Sydney Gottlieb, it seems in terms of the kind of, I think it was the technical services division, was it the development of, of course, the technology, the, the, the poisons and all this kind of stuff so they put poison pills and something in his beard cream to try and make his beard fall out where i'm reading it i'm like i don't know a mob figure with an iq to even think about that but that's enough that's a that's a government plot like there's a real clear line you can start reading into like a skin diving suit that's poison sounds like a science fiction thing but that's 100 percent more of a government tactic than it leads into um, it's it's my selfish question I'm going to ask you because I I want, I'm curious on your thoughts on this but there's talks of Traficante being a double agent. Um, I had talked to a guy who talked about Traficante being in prison and talked about his experience and things of that sort. Now, Ruby allegedly visited Traficante. Um, the reason why I say allegedly, and I do believe that he did, 
because the guy Wilson, who was a British investigative journalist, was locked up in Traficante's prison around the same time Traficante was in Castro's prison. And he called, recalled seeing a man named Mr. Ruby come in and talk to Traficante. Now, he went to the FBI headquarters after he Jack Ruby killed Oswald and told them, that's the guy I saw visit Traficante. They did not care about his statement. They called him a crazy, mentally unstable person. And I go, wait, he's a journalist and you're calling him mentally unstable. So that's weird that you have a mentally unstable journalist working for you. But they literally shamed him. The character assassinated him. Nobody picked up his statements. He's The church committee found out, I think like 10 years later or whatever, that Ruby was actually in Havana the exact time that that guy said he saw Ruby in Havana. But the, the statement was he was just checking out the sites. So I go, unless that's a one in a million guess that he got that, which look, okay, I'll give you like 5% of my curiosity and sure that's what it was, but that's, that puts more weight into it for me, but that would explain why the number of assassination plots didn't work on Castro. But unless we talk about the influencing of movies and this hero that is the FBI, then the mob that is the enemy, when you find out they're working together and it's all a lie, I start going, maybe the mob mentality is fake because I thought there's no way you lock up a mob figure and then he just wants to work with you just so, but then I think from a profit aspect, imagine if you're the only mob family working in Cuba and all the other families are kicked out. I mean, that's great for business if you can develop a relationship with Castro, but I mean, do you, have you looked into that story at all? I mean, what are your thoughts? Um, only in a, in a cursory uh, way, to be honest, Robbie. And um, I mean, I'm, I'm aware of this story and I think there's this allegation or questions around whether Jack Ruby was involved in gun running because of course there was a whole pipeline of weapons um, from, from the late 50s onwards through, you know, the Bay of Pigs and Mongoose from, um, you know, I think even Texas through New Orleans down to Florida and beyond. So um, that was going on. And yeah, certainly uh, there's a lot of searching questions that, 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 you know, revealing questions that need to be asked there about, you know, what were, was the CIA involved? Did Ruby have some kind of relationship that extended beyond organized crime. I think we know all about his organized crime connections that the Warren Commission kind of um, decided to look the other way. He sure as hell knew Dallas police. I don't know why the Warren Commission was like he had no Dallas police connections. That man was walking around in that freaking department and he was, you know, getting people caught. I'm pretty sure he ran the strip club. So I'm guessing some of the cops probably went there and did whatever, but I, nobody wants to acknowledge that. But I, yeah, the Warren Commission said he had no Dallas police connections. I'm like, look, this guy's crazy. I don't know. He, I mean, he seemed like a wannabe. I know that's what they say. He's like a wannabe strip club owner. But the massive amount of connections that guy had that I'm start looking through in documents. And it, the weird thing is I can't tell if he had connections with Oswald or not. I wouldn't think so with Oswald's personality, but there's also five different Oswalds you can choose from from what you want your personality to be. Yeah, yeah. Can I just... um. Put, put us on hold for a sec. Yeah. I just need to pick up, pick up where you left about um, when I asked about what are your thoughts on Ruby and Trevor. Ruby, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think w- one of the very interesting things is that Bobby Kennedy looks at the the transcripts and the records of Ruby's phone calls to various mafia uh, associates in the weeks and months before the assassination of President Kennedy, and he says this looks like uh, an almost identical list of the people we called before the Rackets Committee. So. <laughs> Um, I, I think that's that's uh, you know a hell of a story. And, you know, I, my understanding is again based on on what other researchers have have written in, in you know the hundreds and thousands of excellent books on the subject is that, that Ruby Ebbing was sent from um, you know he, he'd grown up I think uh, as Jack Rubenstein in Chicago, I believe um, off the top of my head, and uh, you know he'd been sent to to help run 
you know, some of the, the mob interests in, as a kind of in Dallas, essentially. So, um, I mean, you look at the phone calls that he made before the assassination. I mean, it's it's how you you look at that and then can possibly reach the conclusion that he just killed Oswald, you know, as a patriot is 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 very it's very hard to kind of stomach that or to why, accept. It. Why are there photos of him at Parkland Hospital when Kennedy's in there getting worked on? Why is there a photo of him dressed up as a reporter correcting someone about the Fair Play for Cuba committee? I mean, there's. Like I said, there's it doesn't take a whole and there is I'm sure you probably come across. There are some really crazy conspiracies, like ones that like are not real at all. And someone has just like they've gone off the deep end on some things, but I can't verify those. Maybe they've seen something I haven't. But what I can stick with is just the weird stuff about this case that just doesn't make sense. I mean, John Orr is a good friend of mine, but he has the best explanation of the Kennedy assassination. He goes, it's the best damn fairy tale you'll ever read. It's got mob figures. It's got corrupt cops. It's got evil government. It's got uh, assassination plots. And he just lists like 20 different things. And it's like it's that's the truest statement I've ever heard, because when you really dive into this thing, there is. It really tests what you can believe and what you can't. I mean, I'm sure. Is there anything with the assassination or just anything in covert operations that you just couldn't believe could to be true? And then you're reading, and you're like, okay, now I'm starting to get to that level of like, this is makes a lot more sense. Like, I feel like if the public had a better understanding of history in the Cold War or just even the 70s during the counterculture revolution and what was going on. They're, and they're not that disconnected from the counterculture. They just don't know the specific stuff in documents like COINTELPRO documents and things of that sort. But when you read it, you go, it could be possible. It, it 100% could be possible that the government or whoever could have pulled off a plot that could be the death of the president or anything of that sort. I do believe military industrial complex because I see notes of it and I see everyone else getting blamed but the people that should have been doing the investigation who just – decided not today we're just gonna wrap it up with oswald so i mean that's my opinion obviously but i think there's just a lot of things that slowly start to get you to the level of like it could be possible yeah i think i think yeah yeah, there's so many fascinating things to unpack there i think first of all that uh, yeah i mean when you start to read the kennedy assassination literature um and, and there's plenty of serious you know, really well-researched books. You know, of course, there are others which are which are perhaps less commendable, but plenty of, of, of phenomenal, you know, very rigorous work that has been carried out by by hundreds uh, of, of authors and, and writers. But, um, you know, you come across some of this stuff, it is, I mean, extraordinary. It's hard to kind of pick things off the, the top of my head, um, but, but you, you kind of, it is mind-blowing. And the incredible thing, I think, about the Kennedy assassination is that you have, the, the six seconds or, or so that are caught on the Zapruder film of the assassination. And, you know, if you look at what an author, a fiction author like Don DeLillo has written, is that it is a postmodern labyrinth and you have tangents and connections that go from the Kennedy assassination into almost everything else. So it's this incredible um, kind of labyrinth that is interconnected to all kinds of things. We've already touched on a lot of them, but of course, it's connected to Cuban covert operators, connected to Mongoose, to uh, the Bay of Pigs, to Northwoods. It's somehow probably connected to Gladio. There's been a lot of allegations, aspersions about potential, you know, Sicilian, uh, sorry, Corsican assassins and so on. So there's these kind of connections to Gladio. We know that, for example, one of, I think, the real uh, figures of interest and, and most suspicious people that, that um, we've only touched on is Bill Harvey. And amongst others. And I think the thing about 
him is he he was in charge of ZR rifle of the, of the CIA's assassination apparatus that was directed at all those world leaders we talked about earlier. Um, and and if you look at Bill, I mean, if you come across Bill Harvey's notes on uh, how to run an assassination, essentially he talks about you know creating a fake 201 file. Um, he talks about use you know blaming it disinformation to blame it on the Soviets or the Czechs. Uh, he, he talks about making sure that nothing's on paper. Uh, don't talk about anything. I mean, in stations, singleton ops, no like chain that can be you know traced back. Um, he talks about running the kind of fake, I think, 201 file through Angleton's counterintelligence team. So there's a whole list of incredible things. And you look at them and you go, oh, my God, this is exactly what happened in the Kennedy assassination. This is, you know, you have, you have Oswald with a 201 file. It was, um, you know, we know that Angleton's counterintelligence uh, special investigations group had, a, you know, a real interest in, in tracing Oswald's career and were monitoring him through the kind of Things like HT Lingual, the kind of mail opening operation. They were opening his mum's mail, for God's sake. You know, so um, you see that you, you have, you know, potentially the fact that Bill Harvey, when he was fired by Bobby Kennedy, was moved by Richard Helms to Rome, um, seemingly as far away as possible, but actually right at the heart of Gladio operations. And we know that Harvey, from his friend, his protege, and his biographer, Bayard Stockton, was over that period of years uh, often disappearing. Um, and it looks like, according to Stockton, he was recruiting uh, organized crime assets, people like QJ Wynn, et cetera, the likes of he had certainly a close relationship with Johnny Roselli, um, who, who were to be used as assassins in these in the ZR rifle program. Um, so you kind of, yeah, you have the whole course inside. Of course, you have the, the dis disinformation um, that is that is then uh, immediately uh, utilized in the wake of the JFK assassination to, to blame it on on Castro, of course, and potentially even the Soviets. So there's all these hallmarks, and I, I, it's very hard, I think, to look at those parallels and to to not think that Bill Harvey is is someone who must have somehow been involved. Um, and I think the other, of course, yeah. I'm about to say the recent files we got released. Um, I don't know if you heard about this, but it was about two weeks ago, three weeks ago now. Um, 400 files were released. Um, there's no public announcement about it, no media articles or anything like that. But it was on the Narrow website. Um, you can find it's the Russian files. Um, so you get to see Russia started up their documents on the assassination as soon as the assassination happened, and everything was blaming. It's stuff we. I mean, I had seen in the files already at the R files. Or speculation about Marina Oswald being a swallow, which is a KGB Russian prostitute. Um, the only reason that, and there's a lot of evidence to support this, but why she was with Lee Harvey Oswald wasn't out of really love, but necessarily was a free trip to the USA. And um, I mean, that would support a lot of different conclusions on things when it comes to why would he just, I mean, you throw your dead husband under the bus and you got two kids, you get to stay in this country is a good example, especially if you cut off all your KGB connections back home. And there's things like I still can't even explain Oswald and LSD. Russia has a file on that. And so does the U.S. has a file. Did you say, sorry, Oswald and LSD. LSD. Yes. Yeah, 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 so yeah, absolutely. When I mentioned that, people go, Oswald wasn't MKUltra. I'm like, it's not that, though. But it does show that he might be a CIA operative if you look at what they gave their operatives before they went overseas in case they were ever caught and interrogated. They had to experience LSD. You had to know about that type of stuff. So, I mean, like I said, that's jumping the gun and that's really going for like the, the, the kill shot. I'm not trying to do that, but it just there's a lot of things that I think paint a way different picture than the 
loner loser type that they said in the official story, which makes a lot of sense. But I didn't know about a uh, assassination plot tactic of being a fake 201 file because the CIA denied that and that they had a file on Oswald. And then I the, one of the recent releases, there's FBI had a file, CIA had a file. Everyone pulled their 201 on Oswald where I'm like, I, you guys said that, you know, you never knew about this guy. What was going on? You guys got a lot of info on this man. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that that is, um, it's a hell of a story. I mean, you, you look at the, the work that Jefferson Morley has done. Um, I think you've had him on, on your on your podcast, haven't you? I mean, I've, I've spoken to Jeff Morley many, many times and uh, read, of course, his, his excellent work. I mean, um, the work he's done there on, on uh, <clears throat> the, the kind of paper trail from Oswald uh, back to Angleton's team, um, the, the CI, SIG, Counterintelligence Special Investigations Group. I mean, it's clear that that, that team had, um, I think under Angleton was was Ray Rocker, uh, and there were others, of course, I think off the top of my head, was it Jane Roman, perhaps? Um, but, but they had, an, you know, what what uh, one of the operatives, I can't remember whether it was Anne Goodpasture or Jane Roman, said to, to Jefferson Morley is these, these files that uh, Angleton's team had on Oswald indicate a, a keen, you know, operational interest in Oswald. Um, and of course, that goes back to, you know, the moment you look at, you scrutinize Oswald's biography, and that whole lone nut story starts to fall apart very quickly, which is very odd, I think. And it raises all kinds of questions about, well, who were the real architects of the Kennedy assassination plot? If we, if we work on the assumption that, that... I was fixing my headphone, you're good. All right. Yeah. I mean, if we work on the assumption, of course, that we're assuming based on, on I think, significant evidence that there was a conspiracy that Oswald, as he said, was a patsy. Um, you know, you start to wonder, well, who who really was controlling all of this? And it, for me, you know, when it, my my research has focused really on David Attlee Phillips in recent years, and he's probably the the most important um, linchpin between Oswald and the agency in many ways, in terms of the stories that have emerged about David Attlee Phillips in relation to, to the allegations made by Antonio Vessiana, um, and in terms of Phillips's own admissions that he was monitoring Oswald in Mexico City. Uh, so I think you start to wonder why Oswald would have been chosen as a patsy when the moment you scrutinize his biography, you see someone who uh, you know, was uh, obviously uh, working in was was it, as a radar operator in the Marines. Defects the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War. Presumably, has divulges or, or has secrets. Um, comes back, no questions asked. Instead of being prosecuted for for uh, treason, can you imagine that happening to Snowden or Chelsea Manning or anyone like that? Of course not. Um, he's just you know even you know has he's, he's given a loan. He, he then starts to co-mingle with rabid, you know, anti-communists, basically, you know, in the Dallas White Russian community in New Orleans with, with the kind of uh, militant anti-Castro groups, whilst at the same time still professing to be a Marxist. So it's it's a, it's a very bizarre story. Um, and and it's, yeah, it's it's very hard to understand. I, I think it's it's not very hard to understand that he must have had he must have had some kind of relationship with the intelligence community, but I think it's very hard to understand who would have made the decision to to choose him as a patsy. Um, that that I think is is a very difficult question. It's weird to me, like when you watch his interviews where he's describing Marxism and the difference between Marxism and communism, 
and he just sounds so intelligent and like very kind of spoken. And then when you see the interviews of him and Dallas police, when they're pulling him through and people are trying to get, pre you know, he says, I'm not a patsy. And then he actually gets a longer turn to talk where he's like, I emphatically deny these charges where you're just like, you know, the official story, if everyone remembers, says that uh, Oswald um, did it for the fame. And this doesn't sound like a guy who's talking about doing it for the fame. And then you kind of like just I mean, I don't know if that the fair play for Cuba committee. Man, I've heard and I do believe this was a there were more uh, FBI agents in those organizations looking for communists to sort those things out. So I figured that that was a lot of that seemed like a giant show. I mean, why are you waving and handing out pamphlets and, you know, letting everybody see your face and everything like that? And it, and it's, I mean, it just doesn't make sense. You're going to get attacked. It's sheep dipping with communism. I mean, the idea, it's a good story. If you really talk about, he went to the Russia, Russia got a hold of him. He dipped him in communism. And then he came back with a bitter rage against this country. And all he did was spout Marxist or, or communist viewpoints. And he subscribed to communist literature. That's where I believe Bill Harvey or David Atlee Phillips start coming in is when you start seeing like the magazines that were loaded to his house, maybe an order of a rifle, a bunch of start, stuff that starts really adding up. But it needs to be from the top too. Angleton. Why do people suspect Angleton of going to Dorothy Kilgallen's house after she had died and take her journal? What about Mary? Or was it Mary Pinchot? Yeah. yeah. Apparently, that was uh, Angleton again that took the journal out. So there's a lot of things like that. Why is he doing that? And who pushed Oswald's visa through? Oswald was supposed to have like a certain it usually takes weeks to get like this visa file going through, but his file was so perfect where I, I don't know the specifics on that, but I had someone talk about it where his file had gone through in what would be considered a record time, especially with the background Oswald had of defecting to another country. And it, it's just like, well, who would have the power to do that? And it has to be someone from above. Like it doesn't need to be all of the government is evil, but if you have a couple people from the top that have giant reputations, whether that's Angleton, whether that's Alan Dulles, or whether that's J. Edgar Hoover, you can really sew this thing together in a very nice way. And people just follow orders. I had talked to um, if you ever read the book Chaos by uh Tom O'Neill about the Manson murders, best interview ever you'll ever hear he's the one that talked about mk ultra and jack ruby he exposed that way before because he had the documentation on it and i kind of just reverbed it and reiterated it um and then tucker carlson said it and everyone's like wait it's real i'm like damn i've been saying it for months um but in his uh in his whole i just forgot my train of thought on that one damn um, I, th I think we were uh we were just talking about um you were talking about Angleton, Dulles, um, David Phillips, Bill Harvey, their relationship with Oswald. All you need is a few people who are, you know, not a, the government. But a yeah, few. a few people from the top, like Hoover and others, to be able to sew it up. Uh, so I was talking about Tom. There we go. I got it. I'm going to keep that in there because it's fun for me because everyone just criticized me. That's fine. Um, but uh, the guy who created the single bullet theory, I forgot his name. Arlen Specter. He had interviewed Arlen Specter, and Arlen Specter at this point, they had like, they were both kind of like, he had a recorder, and then Arlen Specter had a recorder, and they would be like off air, on air, off air, on air. So eventually, people were still recording when it was supposed to be off air, like, hey, you didn't turn your recorder off. But he explained this all in the episode, and he was talking to Arlen Specter. Arlen Specter, if you know anything about him, to his dying day said that he would listen to anybody with new evidence on the assassination. I had emailed Tom O'Neill and said, do you think that Arlen Specter, 
really believed what he was doing was the right answer to it? Do you think that he was just in on the thing? Now, a lot of people think he was a part of it and kind of denying facts, which I'm sure at a point he did, but he built his whole career off of that. That was his thing as a fresh young kid out of law school of like, this is this, but also he was limited in the amount of evidence that they gave him. They never showed him pictures. They never let him go see the autopsy. He was working off the idea of a certain thing as well, too. Now, it does support later that he really wasn't open to new ideas on things, but he was really kind of just going off the glory of something and running off. Even with his candidacy, you can look at his political career. He was running off of, I did the single bullet theory, or I did the magic. He was doing all that. Now, that's where I'm saying it's like you got people at the top now that are other people that are following orders because the people at the top are now orchestrating that. So it doesn't always need to be everyone's evil and they all are in on this, but a lot of people have careers and they're like, I lose this. What happens if I say no to Hoover? You don't say no to Hoover. Like there's just a lot of things that start going on where I start going. If you look at Angleton, if you look at like specific people that have big things, who are they connected to? And then if you boil that down farther, do you get Bill Harvey? I mean, having a gun around his waist when he walks up to the White House, if I'm assuming that's the right guy. Yeah, so there's a lot of oh, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Sorry, yeah. Yeah. Those, were, those were the stories in the, the Washington Post, the loaded gun, et cetera. That stuff came out about Bill Harvey. And it's very interesting, actually. I mean, you know, as David Talbot points out, a lot of that stuff um, that came out about Harvey, this caricature, the hard-drinking out of control, impulsive, um, psychopath kind of character, you know, that actually, you know, according to his, as David Talbot again points out, according to his wife, CJ Harvey, who I think was the first female to attain the rank, uh, military rank of um, whatever it might have been, I can't remember the exact rank, but in, in US history, you know, according to her, you know, of course, she's going to have a certain stake in it. But according to her, he was, he was not this at all. He was a, you know, very, um, uh, efficient and, and effective and uh, op operative who, who was not rogue and who didn't who just who did follow orders um and in fact you know that's that's apparently corroborated by the fact that when his deputy who was mark wire in the rome station uh, had, had started to raise doubts about harvey's um behavior it was actually wyatt who found you know, when he when he when he made these complaints to, I think it was Richard Helms. It was Wyatt who found his career was stalled, not Harvey. Um, so I think what happened during that period of the seventies, where following in the wake of Watergate, in the wake of Vietnam, when these investigations uh, developed, the Church Committee, of course, the um, Rockefeller uh, Committee, and then later the House, uh, of course, Select Committee investigation into the assassinations of JFK and Martin Luther King. Um, when all of that was was going on, and of course the Pike Committee is the one I forgot, um, all of that was was happening. Really, I think Harvey was one of these people, um, although he may certainly have been involved in in uh, in the Kennedy assassination. But I think he was one of these people who acted uh, quite. They were they were you know, um, in as, as David Talbot puts it, indispensable until they became expendable, um, and he he became he's someone who. Who, who fitted into that that a few rotten apples kind of thing? Oh yes, there were a few people who were just rogue and who, who did some of this crazy stuff. Um, and and of course the other and so Carvey, who was very familiar with this stuff, found himself again, as, as David Talbot points out, on the receiving end of this kind of character assassination propaganda kind of um, apparatus. And, and along with David Sanchez Morales, along with David Ashley Phillips, really to some extent, and of course Howard Hunt, all four. 
were kind of uh, strung out as potential kind of a limited hangout scenario. And you have that article, I think, around that time in the late, uh, it must have been the late 70s, from Victor Mar Mar Marchetti, um, where he's, he's a CIA man. He'd been, I think, executive assistant to Helms um, at the time. And then he wrote this article in which he talks about how the agency's thinking about basically um, revealing that Howard Hunt and others were were you know were involved in were in Dallas and all of this and were involved and actually when when it was looked into who his sources were uh, I'm trying to remember who his sources were but essentially Marchetti was someone who wasn't just one of these um, uh, of, of CIA people like Philip Agee who who had decided to, to completely turn against the agency he actually retained um, connections and loyalty to the agency and it looks like perhaps Victor Marchetti's um, article and his um, information was being fed to him from the inner sanctum of the agency. So it was very interesting. I think the thinking that was going on at a very dangerous time where they'd lost narrative, lost, sorry, control of their narrative, that these four people, all of whom actually, despite how uh, important and influential they were at various times, were, were outsiders. You know, if you look at, at those four characters, David Ashley Phillips, uh, Bill Harvey, um, uh, Howard Hunt, um, and, and uh, David uh, Morales, they were outsiders, really. They were not part of this Ivy League um, elite, you know, the likes of Dullis, of, of, of Richard, uh, I forgot his name, Magara was Case the middle name, was it? Helm? Richard Case uh, Nagel? Oh, no, no, Richard Helms. I'm, I'm thinking oh. of his middle name, Richard Magara, I think, is, is it Magara Helms? Um, uh, Tracy Barnes, um, of course, uh, Dulles himself. These were the kind of the, the, the old boys, the Ivy League elite, and they looked down on these outsiders. You know, even though someone like Phillips becomes the third most powerful man in the agency, um, he reaches the highest position that's attainable without, um, without that doesn't require kind of congressional, um, <coughs> well, congressional um, kind of, um, uh, what's the word, kind of, uh, Congressional um, uh, approval, congressional oh. approval. Unlike, I think the director and deputy director, he, he reaches the kind of almost the third highest, basically third highest position. Yet he was, he wasn't, he wasn't ever as this kind of um, Texan who, who hadn't been to, to one of the Ivy League universities along with the others. He wasn't at Harvard, he wasn't at Yale, etc. And um, he was always considered an outsider. And a, a very interesting story I was told recently uh, in the kind of interviews I've been making was with Donald Freed, who uh, was kind of a, he's now in his 90s, but he was a, uh, you know, an, a well-known um, playwright and writer and journalist. And he was one of the people that David Phillips sued for libel um, for making allegations that Phillips had been um, involved in the JFK assassination plot and had been involved in other assassination plots in Chile and, you know, these, these plots involving um um, the, the likes of Orlando Letelier, who was murdered in cold blood on the streets of Washington, D.C. in, in 76. Um, all of that going on. And um, and Freed said that he he happened to, he was this, I think this was before he kind of got into hot water with Phillips. But at the time, Phillips had really injected himself uh, when he retired from the CIA and he set up the um, this kind of PR front for the agency, um, whether or not that was with their blessing is of course a moot, moot point, but it was the Association of Retired Intelligence Officers. I think it became later the Association of Former Intelligence Officers. And um, Phillips was therefore doing the rounds. He was doing a lot of media stuff. 
was on TV, on radio, writing articles, writing books. And, and Freed happened to attend a dinner with him and with William Colby, who later, who at this time was the director of, of the CIA. And he, he told me, Freed, that, that Colby and um, Ray Klein, who I think was deputy director at the time, they really treated Phillips with, with actual, you know, with real contempt. He, he was not considered ever, you know, despite, in spite of everything, to be to be one of one of them um, in in some ways, in spite of the fact that he did belong to that clique. And I think the same thing happened to to um, certainly to Bill Harvey. Um, his wife talked about that, C.J. Harvey, that, that they always looked down on him because he'd been to the University of Indiana, <laughs> even though he was, you know, uh, I think he'd done a law degree and all this. Uh, and I think the same thing with with Hunt, that he'd always thought he was he was one of them, but in the end. When it was convenient, these people were they were prepared to kind of sacrifice them essentially. Um, so so yeah, I think it's I, I think certainly from Hunt's confession, from Morales's own confessions when drunk, from you know Bill Harvey's notes and his the fact that he was running ZR rifle, I think it's it's reasonable to assume that those people were involved in the Kennedy plot. Um, but I don't think that, that I think they then became limited hangouts they became convenient uh culprits essentially to and, and i think what morales from what hunt tells us morales did suggest to him even though hunt claims that he was just a bench warmer on it's a very strange term he uses in his in his deathbed confession which is neither on his deathbed and is neither really a confession but he essentially says he was a bench warmer which kind of implies he was like some kind of substitute in the kind of team jfk assassination it's a very strange Term, but you know Morales, he, he turns up at this hotel meeting with um, Frank Sturgis and Morales, and Morales basically uh, indicates to him that Harvey's involved, and he says that there is authorization from higher up, from right from the top. I think he says, and and Hunt in his kind of later confession claims that that was LBJ, um, and that for me is always smacked of disinformation. I think as as David Talbot, again, you know, excellent uh, book in the Devil's Chessboard points out this was um, really, uh, you know, Hunt even then couldn't bring himself to to reveal the fact that, that it was his idols, probably the people right at the very top of the agency who, who had probably authored all of this and given their, given kind of their blessing and, and, and uh, sanction to this operation. There's a controversial take I wanted to ask you about, but it's Operation Mongoose. Did Ken Kennedy didn't know about that. I thought that was from Na McNamara's papers, where McNamara said that Kennedy didn't have any knowledge of what was going on, that it was just a plan that was approved, I guess, plausible deniability or some sense of the word. I mean, it's harder to understand what is legal speak and what is plausible deniability in half these things, because everyone's wording it. It's like, they're not lying to you. They're just being a, a jerk about the way that they're, you know, like someone asking for a debrief, for instance, on Oswald. Agent Demencia said he interviewed a guy from a radio factory in Minsk. Does the CIA have this file? And the CIA goes, there's no debrief with anyone that fits that description. Well, this guy says this, and he says, you do have the debrief. He goes, actually, we do have a file, but we never call it a debrief because officially it wasn't a debrief. I was like, well, they're not lying. They're just using wording and playing around with it. Like if you try and request something for the Freedom of Information Act, you better get every date right possible, every aspect if that person had coffee that morning or you're not getting that file back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so I think the Kennedy brothers knew about Mongoose. I think the question that, that you're really asking is, did they know about the assassination plots? 
And I think that's, of course, a, a really gray area that, that no one can, can definitively answer. I think it's one of these points in the JFK assassination research community that is um, certainly very divisive. And um, I think what is, um, you know, I think for those of us who are, you know, trying to find out the truth of what happened here, I don't think you have to stake your entire claim on one side or the other in the sense that um, I think it's quite possible to see both sides of the coin. I think you know, for, for you to believe that there was a complicated set of motives for removing JFK doesn't mean that you have to arrive at the conclusion that he was a peacenik, that he was about to bring in you know, radical changes to um, the military industrial complex or the national security state. I think he was felt to be a, a sufficient roadblock, a sufficient threat uh, at the height of the Cold War to essentially, as, as I see it, to um, uh, kind of defeat of the Soviet Union and of communism. And the fact that JFK had started out as likely as a Cold Warrior um, and was changing. And I think his experiences in the Bay of Pigs, in the missile crisis, particularly in that last year of his life, where I think he's starting to change and he's starting to essentially, um, basically, although he took his responsibilities as commander in chief very seriously, um, I, I think he was starting to, to turn and to um, basically deal with the idea that he could come to some kind of uh, accommodation and coexistence with communism. And I think that is really what, when you look at all the different theaters in front of the Cold War, we're not just talking about Cuba and Mongus, I think we're talking about the Berlin crisis, we're talking about his dealings with the Soviets, we're talking about places like Indonesia, Vietnam, of course. In all of these theaters, um, JFK is someone who is, uh, even in Italy, he's beginning, to, to look like he he could lead to, as far as they're concerned, to these kind of hardliners who are absolutely ruthless. He he could, if, if this is left unchecked and there's potentially going to be a Kennedy political dynasty, that, that that's going to lead to not to US hegemony. It's not going to lead to the outcome that of course was arrived at in the end at the end of the Cold War, which was total defeat of the Soviet Union and the 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 dominance of the United States. And of course, so when you when you look at it, I think in that framing, of course, these people were successful. And I think you have to get into their heads. And as much as one maybe um, may may not have the appetite or the stomach for it, and may be disgusted by how immoral and unethical they were, they were, you know, when it came to rail politics and it came to power politics, these people were were you know very effective, very successful at, at achieving. Um, their aims. And, and that's something that, you know, in, in writing and researching a, you know, a book about David Ashley Phillips, I've really had to kind of get into their heads and you start to see things, whether you agree with it or not, from their perspective. And, and if you look at um, what the Kennedys were doing, you know, they authored Mongoose, or authorized rather Mongoose. And I think without, you know, without that, without Mongoose, it's, you know, I don't think there's any Kennedy assassination, probably. There's, you know, you've you've created this apparatus that is um, full of fanatical extremists and militants right on U.S. soil, you know. And of course, I think where the plausible deniability bit comes in is the more extreme aspects of Mongoose rather than the operation itself. 
Um, I think the Kennedys at that point were still quite driven and adamant that they wanted to overthrow Castro. Um, and I think that's right up until the end, really. But in terms of did they know about, did they author the assassination plots, you know, in terms of the, the use of organized crime assets, that is, of course, a gray area. And we know we have the conversation where Bobby Kennedy, as Attorney General, discovers from Sheffield Edwards, um, and I think, it's, is it not Bissell, it's Sheffield Edwards and um, someone else, he discovers, maybe Harvey or someone, discovers that um, that they're still using, you know, that they've been using organized crime in Mongoose. And he says, well, I hope that, that of course, that in future, if the if the U.S. government decides to 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 basically um, have a relationship or to use organized crime uh, people, that you will inform the Attorney General, um, and they promise him that you know basically this isn't going to happen again. And and of course, it does continue. Um, so I think that's that's quite an interesting conversation that indicates that that Bobby Kennedy, of course, who'd spent years, although he was actually at that point probably more hawkish than Jay than his brother. Um, I think it's certainly spent a lot of time um, fighting organized crime through the Rackets Committee and prosecuting them as Attorney General. So it's hard to imagine that he would have then um, been, been um, comfortable with the idea of using these people like Roselli and Giancarlo. So it's it's certainly possible that he knew about it, but it doesn't really fit in with his, his overall strategy. I think in terms of assassination plots, we know from one thing, for example, is that JFK's conversations with the journalist, I think he's a New York Times journalist, Tad Salt, um, where he, he talks about this with Tad Salt, and he says, he says to, to Tad, you know, what, what do you think about the idea of assassinating foreign leaders like Castro? And, and Tad says to him, well, you know, that's pretty immoral and disgusting. And JFK says, yeah, there's basically a lot of pressure on me from, uh, it seems, from intelligence people to, to okay this. Um, so I think he was, he was obviously under that kind of pressure. Um, but it's it's quite possible that, um, as McNamara, as you point out, as McNamara says, that these more kind of um, extreme and uh, unedifying aspects of Mongoose were being carried out by by basically a rogue, by the agency acting as a rogue elephant. Essentially, I think that's that's quite possible. At the same time, it's it's you know, it's it's very hard to establish if if the Kennedy brothers how much they knew. Of course, do you? This is one last question, but do you think that? the public will ever get answers on what happened in 63. I know it's a dumb question. It's kind of like asking who did it, but it, at this point, it's just, I don't know. I thought I was coming in at the right time. I mean, I started talking about it and then next, thing you know, it's all over the news and I thought it was something like, Oh, it's the anniversary coming up. That's why. But it turns out people still actually kind of care. At least a lot of my friend groups are listening to the shows I do on it, and they're kind of interested. I, th I think they didn't realize how much was already proven that was wrong from the original story, which is like, it's all you need to do is just show the people that. And with that, we can move forward. But I don't know. The document things, that's the main thing we kind of need, even if it, there's no smoking gun. But what are your thoughts on like the future going forward with the Kennedy assassination? I, I, think, I think it's a very... Um... It's a you know fascinating question again, Robbie. Um, I suspect that um, sadly we probably won't ever know, but I think we won't know the definitive answer in, in all likelihood. I think it will probably it's it's a bit of a, it's a mess, sadly, and it looks like that's the way it's going to go down in history as one of these mysteries. But I think what's incredible is the amount that we do know, and I think no one. I think in terms of those kind of veteran researchers who've been doing it for decades, 
I don't think anyone, uh, in terms of, of what came out during the 70s and what came out later as a result of the Assassination Records Review Board, what's coming out now, in terms of the fact that we have somewhat four and a half million pages of documents, and of course, not all of it directly related to the assassination, but I think I think no one ever anticipated, um, you know, if you go back to 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 to, to the sixties or seventies, that we would have that that level of granular detail, that amount of information. And I think when you start to put it together, as we've already you know discussed, I think the conclusions are inescapable. That that I mean, this was David Phillips himself. You know, his his he was asked by uh, Kevin Walsh, the late Kevin Walsh, who was one of the um, I think House investigation uh, researchers. He, he, he had a conversation with him, kind of at some point uh, later on in his career. And Phillips said, "My final take on the assassination is that it likely involved." I, I'm not quoting verbatim here because there's there's various versions of this quote, but he basically said that it likely involved um, American intelligence officers. So that was Phillips's final take on it. Now, whether that's the closest that a fairly reserved man will ever come to a confession, or whether he was someone who was somewhat entrapped by kind of piggybacked operations to do with um, Oswald, particularly um, Oswald in Mexico City, um, well, I don't think we will necessarily ever know. But certainly Phillips and Hunt and others, of course, are amongst those those key operatives and personnel who whose you know, where there are very important details in those thousands of, of pages of documents that remain, you know, classified, of course. So I I suspect, as others have pointed out, that, that there will not be necessarily a smoking gun in those documents, but there is presumably something in there that, that has been kept under wraps for a very good reason for 60 years. Better be um, the answer to that damn venereal disease he got in Atsugi. I'm telling you that much. I need to know, man. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, I suspect one of the big secrets will be that uh, Oswald, that, that there was, I think when you look at Phillips's, the whole Phillips Vesiano story, when you look at um, the Mexico uh, City story, I, I think both of those stories, whatever your conclusions about them, and of course, someone like John Newman has cast a lot of doubt on Vesiano's credibility. Um, but I think whatever you whatever conclusion you draw from that, I think it's what is inescapable is that in both cases, it looks like the agency had a keen intelligence interest in Oswald. I think that's one of the big secrets that they're hiding. But I think when you look at the more circumstantial evidence, of course, rather than hard evidence, I think it's inescapable that there, as Phillips concluded, that there were key, uh, that there were senior officers involved. Um, and the, the question is, of course, w w were they given, you know, was that plot carried out just by some rogue operatives? I think that's probably one of their better cover stories. Or was it actually a plausibly deniable operation that, that was kind of a national security operation run and given sanction and blessing from, from the operations? I think that's much more likely, but there will be no hard evidence and probably no trace of anything and no circumstantial evidence even that points to uh, anyone beyond that kind of roster and i think the evidence that implicates the likes of of morales or harvey um or even hunt is quite quite convincing that those people had some kind as as um uh, what's his name bradley as the the mongoose veteran 
said, you know, he, he listed in his letter to the uh, Assassination Records Review Board a number of people from the kind of JM Wave station whom he believed had um, uh, intimate operational knowledge of the, the Kennedy assassination, you know, CIA officers. So I, I think trying to establish beyond that uh, some kind of, of evidence paper trail, I don't think that exists, that, that, that takes you all the way up to the likes of Dulles or Holmes. Um, but it's, I think it's very hard to believe that these operatives who essentially, the way, I, I actually went through a similar journey as you, Robbie, and I, in recent weeks and months, when I started researching Phillips, I was convinced that Phillips was involved in the assassination plot. And the more I've gone along, the more murky these things become. And there's so much smoke and mirrors that you end up thinking, well, I think it's 50-50 as to whether Phillips was involved in the pre-assassination plot or whether he actually became entrapped in it and, and was involved in the cover-up. But um, eventually, I've, I've kind of now come closer to a position where I'm thinking, when you look at the history of these people, the likes of Phillips, the likes of Morales, the likes of Hardy, that these are people, if you look at their entire career in Guatemala, uh, in Vietnam, in Cuban operations, in Chile, they followed orders. Um, they were very effective, very efficient. They followed orders. The idea that when it came to the biggest operation of all, uh, kind of removal of a sitting US president, that they went rogue, it's actually very hard to accept that, isn't it? To believe that they would have done something, you know, like that. When yeah, because I know they'll be killed. They'll be killed. That's what's going to happen. You got all those nation secrets. Uh, you 100 percent they're going to get you somehow. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's all kinds of question marks about that on there about Morales's death, even Harvey's death. So, um, you know, I think the only one Phillips I can't and... get past is Johnny Roselli. That's a chop up. That's a mob thing. That's not a. I don't see the CIA pulling off that one. But then there's like um, Gene Connor shot to death in his apartment. I mean. Could that be possible? I mean, there's a there's a lot of mysterious deaths in the assassination, and like Eddie Benavidez, I think is one, and then David Ferry, I think, is another. They both died on the same uh, day. Yeah, there was yeah the guy. What's his name? Um, uh, Jim Cothey died well. of a throat chop. Who? Jim Cothey died of a throat chop. I had Larry Hancock on here, who actually interviewed his wife. And got the details from it, but apparently stepping out of a shower, that's his official cause of death, was a ch chop to the back of his neck. Um, and that's how he died. Where And there's a couple people with throat chops as like or blunt trauma to the neck or something like that that was in their um, autopsy that gets listed as a suspicious death. But like I said, that's a lot of that goes down a deep deep like where anybody can take a guess about how you want it to happen but i don't know to me it's just interesting it's like that's the way to go man a hundred percent i want that on my gravestone that'd be awesome <laughs> yeah i mean i think i think that's it's you know it's um who was that by the way who was who was the victim of a jim jim cothey was um the guy he was a reporter that was in jack ruby's apartment the night after jack ruby shot oswald and was arrested he was in his apartment going through a, with a, another a couple police officers and things, but he was going to write a book about Ruby, much like Dorothy Kilgallen's more well-known one. But she was going to write a book about either Jack Ruby or something, and then she happened to die with her book on her chest and her reading glasses in the other room. And there's, like I said, that goes into a lot of the minutia stuff because a lot of that starts becoming – you can enter specula speculative territory. I don't think you need to like I, I stay I stay away from the who. I think the most important thing is getting the public in on the discussion because one thing we can get out of what documents they might have kept and that might not be a smoking gun, but it would show a lot of evidence of the cover up is autopsy manipulation. 
if that is real and there is an autopsy manipulation where in the HSCA investigations, the guy's looking at the photo of Kennedy's everyone's seen at the back of his head and how like the scalp's a little bit kind of messed up. And he goes, why is the top wet and the bottom's not? It's a video you can watch 1978. It's dated on YouTube. It's on Vince Palomaro's um, YouTube channel. But he goes, why is the bottom not wet and the top is? And everyone just goes silent. And like, I, I mean, that's to me, like, as, as long as someone's asking a question like that, I mean, if they did mess with an autopsy, you do not destroy that documentation just so you have a record and you keep a log and that information somewhere. So that might be a possible thing. But the aspect of like, oh, yeah, we got this guy paid him this amount of money to do this act. You're not going to have them do any of that. You just I mean, I've talked to like William Law is a good person you should talk with. He um interviewed uh, Gerald. What is it? Oh, the FBI agent, Cyberton O'Neill. Um, and they talked about an ambulance that went missing for like 45 minutes and they're driving around the hospital looking for the ambulance with Kennedy's body apparently in it and no one can find it. Like it just disappeared from the parking lot and then they see it rolled up to the back door and they had checked that back door. Like they had circled around the building, just randomly pops up there. And then why were there three caskets dropped off at the morgue at different times? That's another thing as well, too, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And that comes from statements from the doctors and people that worked on Kennedy saying he was butt naked with his head wrapped inside the coffin. Um, so there's like a lot of things that just I mean, you start, you know, pointing out this stuff. I don't think that's routine at all. So I just kind of I think the public can start hearing that and then be a little bit more open to what was going on, which. Then it goes into who did it. And that that to me, I just get lost because I'm like, damn it, you can pick anybody, man. You could say Jack Ruby did it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think this is all obviously this work was was carried out in this was best evidence by David Lipton, wasn't it? Who 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 first really delved into this and, and away, know, as, as Robin Ramsey of Lobster, which is a kind of parapolitics journal. Um, as he points out, you know, this this is one of the greatest um you know works of of, of detect incredible detective work what Lifton did to, to kind of get all of those people to give this testimony to prove that there must have been some kind of manipulation and surgical correction on JFK's body and of course it, it's that you're straight into the realms of the x-files and of of you know rabbit holes and all of that because if, if you know if it, to, to, but it, but it's but there is a very you know convincing compelling evidence that this happened but, but, you know, Robin Ramsey makes the point, um, he's a fellow Brit, that, you know, you would have to be certifiably insane, that, you know, he he accepts and he believes that this did happen, that there was some kind of manipulation, um, both before and, and of course, during the autopsy. And I think it's probably quite likely that there were two autopsies carried out, that there was an official autopsy, and then there was some kind of perhaps national security autopsy carried out to actually discover the the, the reality of what had happened and what it had, 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 um... it just doesn't make sense when they cut his scalp off because that's what they do when they take the brain out when they the guy this comes from the doctor who pulled the scalp off kennedy but kennedy's brain just plopped out it doesn't work like that you're connected doll down in here through your brain stem and everything so someone had to either pre-snip and that goes into like why did they do bethesda medical center i mean why was the brain gray Bray soaking in formaldehyde for a couple of days tends to lose its color and go gray. Do they get one from the, the morgue that's at the Bethesda Medical Center that the students work on? I mean, there's a lot of questions. Like, how does a brain get more weight on it? 
than if he just got his half his head basically looks like it was blown off if you go by the Zapruder film. And then people just go, well, the Zapruder film's altered. I'm like, well, shit. You know what? <laughs> well, I think the conspiracy community has honestly done a little bit of good to it, but also some damage on some things as well, too, when it comes to at least trying to get the public on the discussion. But that even happened with Lifton. I respect Lifton. I had emails with him back and forth. He passed away recently, um, a little while now. Um, but he was working on another book and he had his own research going on, but never really shared. So he did have some videos on YouTube you can find, but what was going on in his head? I mean, did you write it down? Did you make a log? Did you do a podcast? He didn't do a whole lot of that. So that just all that information might be gone and we might take us a while to get back to that progress of things. But the first generation researchers, the people that still keep it up for 50 years, 40 years, 30 years, 20 years, however long, even picking it up now, are doing a really big service to at least understand a lot. But we know a lot more than that day. And it always just gets me whenever I talk to someone about it and they roll their eyes. I'm like, we can't do that anymore. Like I, if I've been through the documents, I've seen the work and I can show you it, then you got to at least be open to understanding it as well too. And I mean, I respect you for being able to research and talk about it as well too. I mean, it's not an easy subject. I'm sure, you know, it gets exhausting at times. You might want to take a break from it a little bit, but I don't know. It's something about it, reading them documents. It just makes you feel like you're like a fly on the wall in a conversation going on with them. Yeah, exactly. Precisely. I mean, you've, you've touched on so many things. There. I mean, I think one of the the really important things is that this isn't history. That, that covert, you know, the fact that, that, you know, the U.S. is spending 50 percent of its federal budget on defense and on the military industrial complex when it could be spending that money uh, not on just on running an empire, but on. On, on infrastructure, on healthcare, on education, on, on public welfare. Um, I mean, the, the reality is that th these, these operations, these covert operations that led to regime change, to assassinations, to all kinds of unsavory stuff we've talked about, you know, this isn't history. This isn't just the Cold War. This is ongoing. You know, it's continued right now into the 21st century. And it has this kind of secrecy is very toxic. It has a very corrosive impact on democracy. Um, because what we've seen in the 21st century is the war on terror. We've seen Iraq, we've seen Afghanistan, you know, there was a 20-year war. We've seen, you know, Syria, we've seen all this other stuff going on that's still continuing, of course. Um, and, you know, it's it raises all kinds of uh, very unsettling and disturbing questions about who really who, you know, what, what kind of a democracy do we have? Who really runs the country? You know, is it the elected officials like JFK at the time? Or is it actually a very uh, permanent set of, you know, entrenched elite interests who are there, you know, re who have this continuity regardless of where the comings and goings of elected officials? And that's interestingly the kind of conclusion that Antonio Vessiana reached in his relationship with David Phillips, was that Phillips represented this kind of nexus this network of of the deep state basically and of course in the mainstream you know this is kind of laughed at it's ridiculed it's dismissed as conspiracy theory but i don't see how you can look at all the things we've talked about today in the podcast that are verifiable that have you know documents that were officially carried out and, and not arrive at the conclusion that, that that national security state that military industrial complex that secret state deep state call it what you will that emerges in the US after World War II becomes this gargantuan leviathan. And that, that influence that it has is what Eisenhower warned about when he coined the term military industrial complex that Kennedy found himself you know, fighting against. And that actually almost every president 
since has struggled with Nixon himself, um, uh, Carter in the October surprise, um, and, and certainly since then. Um, so, you know, it's very interesting that at this moment in time, you have, of course, Robert Kennedy, Robert Kennedy Jr., who is, um, you know, in the running as a, as, a, as a Democratic presidential candidate. So and he's talking about all of this. So this is this isn't just history; it's extremely relevant. I think, of course, one of the things you uh, things you touched on is um, is the the kind of stuff that exists in that conspiracy theory realm that is just ridiculous stuff, like I don't know, um, chemtrails or uh, alien, you know, maybe stuff to do with aliens, whatever it might be, right? Um, and I think it's important to remember that that there is a lot of psyops that go into and disinformation that goes into controlling the narrative and you have to ask yourself either someone is very silly to believe that stuff or you know the way i see it is you have to ask yourself who's coming up with this stuff you know who's coming up with things that are so ridiculous like you know when it comes to 9 11 talking about i don't know holograms or whatever it might be you know that who does that whose interest does that serve that you so that amount of confusion and disinformation to delegitimize any um, serious critique of covert operations. I think that's the question that I ask, really. Well, Yusuf, if you give me enough of your time, is there a place where people can find any of your links? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, my, in terms of, I didn't really do any, kind of talk about my background. I'm, I'm a medical doctor. I wrote, I started out as a, in terms of my, my writing as an author and a freelance journalist writing about um, healthcare privatization, privatization of healthcare systems here in the UK and the NHS. But I've moved on obviously to to kind of this arena of national security and covert ops. And if you're interested in reading my work, I, I, if you go to, uh, to to type in my name, Yusuf el into uh, and look up uh, The Independent, which is one of the major uh, media outlets and national newspapers here in the UK. I've written quite extensively on some of these subjects in long form there so i think that's that's probably a good a good starting point if you're interested but uh, hopefully i'll be bringing out a book in the coming kind of couple of years on on uh, the, the unredacted story of david Ashley phillips the uh, cia and the secret state i'm gonna link all your links in the description and also when your book comes out in a couple of years we'll be able to go back and link it as well too just so people will be able to click it if they're listening in the future um but thanks everybody for listening yeah thanks everybody for listening to this episode of out of the blank stay tuned for our next episode